Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and The Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Kanjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Well, on this morning's episode of The Gate, we are excited to have with us a dear colleague of mine, Dr. Bridget Behe at Michigan State University. Bridget is a marketing researcher and professor. So Bridget, it's all yours. Well, thanks, Peter and Michelle. It's fun to be a guest on your podcast today. Um, Because I do my own, I know how this works. And it just, it's really fun when you can have a conversation, especially with old friends and new friends at the same time. Yeah, my career path, I grew up in State College, Pennsylvania, went to Penn State for my undergrad and thought I wanted to be a surgeon and uh, didn't want to have that kind of a lifestyle. So I quickly found the science of plants and um, actually dual degreed in horticulture and agricultural education. I still remember the dean saying, you don't get two diplomas. And I said, yes, sir, I do. Then went to Ohio State, which is where Peter and I met, and uh, got my master's there with Jerry Robertson, who was killed in a car accident, but Harry Tayama and Tim Prince and Dave Hahn and Buck Matthews, I really went around and got a lot of faculty supporters so I could finish my degree, and then went back to Penn State for my PhD with Denny Bolnick and just continued the consumer behavior studies. It doesn't seem like academia was quite ready for people like me. They knew what ag economists are, were, and they understood what horticulturists were, but they didn't quite understand what I do. And so one of the jobs that was available to me was at Auburn University, and I was their first woman in the tenure track, and that was 1989. And I spent eight years there, worked with the greenhouse industry, taught several classes, and then uh, Michigan State had a position come open almost 24 years ago. We were excited to come up here, my husband and I, and our son was three at the time. I guess you could say it was a happily ever after story, because I'm still here. Well, thank you, Bridget, and it's been fun for me to keep in touch with you. Uh, We both gave quite a bit in terms of industry service via an association that uh, we both grew up with during our Ohio State days, formerly the Ohio Florist Association, which has now evolved into American Hort. Bridget, I had the pleasure last week of attending an online workshop, and you were one of, I believe, four speakers. The things that you covered are also of interest to Michelle and myself, and some of the topics that you covered are topics that we seem to be returning to on a recurring note as we go from during the the podcast. So one of the things that we'd like to start with, uh, if you could recount, and this will be Michelle's first time hearing you talking about your research, but recount a bit about and how you tied it into the COVID experience of the past year in terms of what, what you're learning about the consumer behavior and then how you're helping translate it to growers and help advise us as growers what we need to do in order to not be left behind. Yeah, boy, that's, yeah. So I've always operated 
and the interface between the consumer and probably mostly the retailer, because that's really to me where the frying pan meets the fire. I noticed quite a few years ago that that was a void, that the economists were addressing some issues, but a lot of them were international and many of them were policy directed. And yet there was still a need for what I'll call a practical data driven program where you could give people data that they could help, that could help them make information or make decisions develop their marketing strategies. And so that's really the space that I've operated in a lot with ornamentals, but increasingly more with food because that is really becoming a key product in our, our horticulture industry. Most recently, I've been using the eye tracking technology because to me, that is an objective way that we can understand consumer behavior. It's a tool, either the glasses or the part that you attach to the computer it triangulates where people are looking because we know eye movement is very deliberate, but it's also very task specific. So we don't look at the world the same way when we drive a car that we do when we're buying a plant. And so I've really included that new technology over the last decade with quite a few colleagues and, and graduate students. But when the pandemic hit, here in Michigan, our governor closed everything down. I, that was the first time in my career I actually lost sleep because of my industry and my inability to help them get their doors open. And yet through Michigan Farm Bureau and Michigan Nursery and Landscape Association, I was able to help provide the evidence that, hey, if these businesses don't open in April, we could lose a third or more of these businesses, these small family operations that are a big piece of horticulture in Michigan. So thankfully that opened up. Then I said, okay, this is a great moment to look at consumer behavior. And so we did some research about motivations for buying plants last year. That was funded by the Horticultural Research Institute, a branch of American Hort. HRI is the very benevolent research arm of American Hort, uh, we get funding. We're, we're very, very grateful for that. So they, they funded the study last year looking at motivations and we included things like plant benefits because uh, Melinda Knuth and Charlie Hall did a great series of articles that showed, accumulated the research that showed the benefits, the emotional, the social, the mental health, the physiological benefits that plants bring we wanted to see if, if any of those were pieces of motivation. We looked at uh, food security. You know, you can be food insecure and not be hungry. And the results showed that we did see some food insecurity yet without hunger, but still people were nervous about their food supply. We also looked at boredom and we found a, a published scale to measure boredom and we found not really a big surprise to me, but the younger age cohorts were more prone to boredom than older age cohorts. And that did play a role in plant purchases. And then we also looked at home renovations. And one of the interesting things I think that we found was when you compare plant buyers to non-buyers, plant buyers engaged in twice the number of home improvement projects. I'm not talking specifically about plants. I'm talking about home improvement projects. 
And we further found out that that was not for, for repair, that that was for change. So it was boredom. It was looking at the same four walls, wanting to get back in touch with nature. We, we measured nature relatedness. We saw a lot of these very different motivations cause the spike in sales in our industry last year. And we are getting ready on July the 7th. HRI has funded a second year of data collection. So what we're doing is we're waiting until after the 4th of July holiday to begin the second round of data because then people will have had their plants for several weeks. And so we'll be able to report some of the differences between the pandemic year and then coming out of the pandemic. And it would be great to, to try it again in 2022 just to get three uh, data points. But I, I think it's really interesting because we're, we didn't just look at sales, we looked at the underlying whys. Yeah. Bridget, I wanna go back to a comment you made early on and, and get your perspective on this. Michelle has heard me say repeatedly that as a production horticulturist, I and colleagues of my era learned that at the end of an article or at the end of a presentation, make sure we talk about the economics, whether it's the last paragraph or the last slide. And I've said to Michelle, we've needed to be hit on the side of the head with a two by four to say this perhaps is not the best way to do it. Yes, you're including it, but let's be a little more purposeful about it. How do you feel we're doing with the, the backdrop of historically, we did it the way I'm talking about doing it. Are we doing better now? I think we are. I think the, the needle definitely has moved, but I know that it, not, it has not moved as much as I would hope that it has had moved at least over my 33 years and counting. People need research-based information to make decisions. They find that it either supports their hunches or in some cases it refutes those or calls them into question. And it, it's just another benchmark, if you will. And I always kind of gauge by where I am on the program because if I'm at the end, I know that the production information still is pretty important to, to the audience, but it, I kind of smile to myself when I'm at the beginning of the program, because to me, that's really where we should begin. Yeah. We should begin with the consumer. We should begin with the end user. We should begin with them in their irrationality, in, and they're not rational creatures, and they're extremely diverse, and things changed a lot over time, I mean, we saw that the huge reset that we've had from the pandemic, which, you know, as a researcher, I get all excited about because it's just so much to study. But, um, you know, following the trends is, is interesting. And, and I do like to listen to my colleagues, but they're not very numerous. They, they're still, there's still more to be done than there are people like me. Yeah, we have our silos. Michelle, so back in the day, when we'd be planning the American Hort, the Cultivate program back in those days was the OFA short course. Bridget would be on a committee for retail slash garden center. I'd be on the grower committee. We'd be locked up in separate rooms all day in, in these silos, putting our programs together. And at the end of the day, all the groups, there are about six different groups and tracks on the program. We'd get together and kind of share what we've done and how the program was shaping up. Then we'd all go back home and it would take weeks or months to 
contact speakers get the whole thing together. It made sense to do it that way to, to try and stay focused. But I think today now we all recognize that it's it has to be integrated more than it has been in the past. So Bridget, all those graduate students that you're cranking out, Michelle, your generation, keep pushing, pushing so that we can integrate this whole thing. So Michelle, let, let me hand it over to you. Yes, I'd like to make a corny joke to start with on that explanation of everybody being siloed. It feels like in agriculture, we could value the heterozygous approach to it and that we do need those different pieces pulled together. So we've tried to achieve with our conversations and this podcast. I agree that that it's an interesting place to start and that understanding what the consumer wants and how all this has is constantly changing is really important. And I guess, I don't know, I was sort of surprised at all of the different angles that you brought into your research last year, that like there was this question about food insecurity. And then there's a different question about boredom and there's a different question about home improvements and a different about nature. And I don't think consumers, I don't think that farms, I don't think that marketers really think about those different channels period, and then how they interplayed with each other last year. And then on top of it, that like, it seems even more apparent because the pandemic hit different groups of people in such different ways. It feels like that is super powerful information to go back into extension and like elevate this conversation again. I remember sitting there after we were able to get the at home in my home office, just like everybody else. And once the doors were open in April, I thought, okay, you know, what, what's going to drive people in there? Is it, is it going to be a toilet paper issue? You know, are we going to have hoarding? I don't think we saw that, but that was really, it piqued my curiosity because I thought here's a moment where I just really need to throw a lot of things in here and see what sticks. And it really surprised me. The home improvement for change really surprised me. The uh, food security, I guess, didn't surprise me because when I remember my husband and I, we were in South Carolina and flew back the day that Michigan closed up. And I told him we need to go to the grocery store on the way home. And he said, okay, we're gonna go to this one because it's a little more rural. And I remember getting in there about two or three in the afternoon and how empty, how bare the shelves were. And I thought, oh my gosh, we've, we've never faced this before. It was just the two of us, but how are we going to eat here for a couple of weeks if this continues? You know, thinking about all the, the reasons why people might be doing it. And now coming out of the pandemic, it's interesting to me how prominent our industry is in other advertisements. Whether you're looking at business to consumer online or, or offline, Flowers, plants, vegetables, herbs play a prominent role. I mean, you can't look at an ad, a furniture store, for computers, for anything that's in the kitchen without seeing a succulent, a foliage plant, a white orchid, or some herbs in the background. And I remember looking at an ad for the liners you put in the back of a pickup truck and there's some bedding plants in there and it was a must have for this year. And they weren't really talking about the bedding, but my point is our industry has become so prominent, so salient. 
that's the word I'll stick with salient, we're at the top of the mind, that now moving forward, this is really our game to lose. We have captured attention, we have high demand for purchases, we need to follow through, just like my husband tells me with my golf swing, we got to follow through on this and we have to make sure that they are successful. What do you do with all of these tomatoes? And what do you do with all of these peppers? And, and it can't stop at the sale. And, and we've got to get them across the finish line and keep them engaged on social media and get them back next year. Now, I know my crystal ball says we're probably going to lose a few to attrition because we can do other things now. But this is our game to lose now. We're literally in the driver's seat. And the more we can continue to keep our industry salient, I think the better off we're going to be in 2022. Bridget, that's a, a wonderful word for you to be putting into the conversation that, that's salient. Now, you're touching the most important point of our conversation, and we're only halfway through, but I think you just hit the nail on the head. Michelle and I are having a recurring back and forth about how much of the, if I say, pandemic slash COVID gains, how much can be transferred and made permanent. And you mentioned we'll lose a few of the consumers so we keep asking ourselves, if last year was a banner year as we're hearing, whether it's greenhouse ornamentals or edible crops, if growers did as well as they did on the local level, the smaller folks, so how much of this gain can they translate and make permanent? Talk to us a little bit about that from your perspective in terms of what your research is telling you and also what your, your gut is telling you in terms of, are they going to give much of it back? How do they retain it? Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly is gonna be interesting. I, I think we have reached a bit of a peak, but you think about particularly small grower retailers or just small retailers, plant retailers, they, they have so many jobs to do that the communication across social media has become an onerous burden for many, and yet some have embraced it, and many who have embraced it have been completely successful. And there is very little turning back. I read in the Wall Street Journal not very long ago that digital advertising now exceeds all other media combined. So TV, TV plus newspapers, plus magazines, plus billboards, plus radio, they are all now less than digital. And we also know that Facebook is the, the king, I guess you will, of, of social media, but we also have Twitter, Pinterest. Those three are the vehicles of future communication. But you go back, take the step to the small grower retailer or just a small retailer, and that's kind of intimidating to think, oh my gosh, you know, for pretty much my whole career, half my career, this is how we've communicated. And now that everybody's telling me I need to do this social media stuff. And it's very different. It's, it's conversations like we're having today. It's not advertisements. I, th I think it's challenging for so many of them, but yet you look at those who are doing it and doing it well, and they are just amazingly successful. The, the grower retailers, the growers, the retailers, and, and I hate that all the marketing falls on the retailers. 
that just shouldn't, that's not the way that it should be. You know, we, we've never had big support for the small grower. And that's probably a whole nother conversation in terms of their marketing and communications, which is again, where I try to fill that gap. And so, you know, moving forward into next spring, the other industries I hope will do us a big favor and keep us in their ads. I, I hope that the, the watering issue from a production standpoint, from a consumer standpoint, is still the big, I guess, tipping point. People either water too little or too much. When they go away, they can't water. They don't understand, you know, plants can't go that long at 90 degrees. They can't go a day without water. We still don't have a good water solution. I think whoever comes up with that water solution for the consumer is going to be an incredibly wealthy person. And so if we could if we could solve that watering issue, if we could address the communications issue, I think we're going to be okay. I think we'll lose several percent of the new consumers. You know, it's been said of the pandemic, we were all in the same storm, but not in the same boat. And so coming out, if you will, the haves and the have nots, those who fared well, those who didn't. And so to me, this is pointing to a dichotomy in pricing that we need to have the value menu as well as increased prices on many of the larger containers, the mixed baskets, the things that cannot be easily compared. We need to increase prices because the price of all the inputs is going up. And I know particularly for growers and especially for retailers, people just shake in their shoes thinking about price increases, but we can't do it. You can't com mm. keep compressing the margin. I think there's a value menu and making deliberate decisions about four inch of this or one gallon of that where the, the price shopper can have some choices, not new cultivars, not the latest and greatest, not big stuff, but we don't want to price them out of the market. But I think we also have to give them, give our customer base an option of moving up with newer cultivars, more interesting containers, not homogenous, but heterogeneous containers, maybe that have names. It's going to be a very interesting strategy for next year. Before the pandemic, I started to hear a little pushback on prices and people go nuts sometimes over these rare plants. I've, I've talked about them a little bit. You don't need very many of those to make a lot of money. Basically, business is multiplication, units times price. And whether we're talking about these rare plants or a value menu, we need to be more deliberate, more strategic about what's on that value menu and where do we need to increase prices because at the end of the day, we have to make the math work. The numbers don't lie. We, that's really where the evidence is about us being successful or not. And I'm not saying money is our only indication of success. I know a lot of people who grow poinsettias to keep their labor employed. There's a reason for that, but they understand part of their equation. So I don't know, I think it'll be interesting, but I, I just, I feel badly for growers who and retailers who can't really embrace social media and understand 
the need to have an ongoing conversation, less of a commercial, more of an ongoing conversation about topics of interest to the, their customers. And they wanna talk about food and they wanna talk about the environment. They wanna talk about fertilization for plants. They wanna talk about being good stewards. They wanna talk about pollinators. Mm -hmm. You know, they wanna be engaged in these very important timely topics. And, you know, I can just hear the retailers going, oh man, one more thing I gotta do. And I do feel bad. Well, that's coincidental, Bridget, because just a week or so ago, Michelle asked that we cover a topic that is speaks to what you're saying. And Michelle, you, you asked that we have a conversation about small growers and labor the, the skilled versus unskilled and how they have to play the jack of all trades versus grow to a size where I need to hire someone. And Bridget, you and I have, th those conversations have been around the family greenhouse operation, you know, and the small family farm for, for generations. So it's something that still needs to be addressed. And it's, it's very timely that you bring it up um, a week after, Michelle, you wanted to talk about it. My point is that we tend to talk a lot in agriculture about unskilled labor and that need for it and where are we going to get it, but it just feels like there are a lot of places now where there's a lack of skilled labor and whether it's consolidation or whether it's outsourcing different pieces. I mean, having somebody run your marketing team is not an un but like you have to know the industry you have to be able to speak that language of what's going on with how to water your plants and the value of the different containers and the exotic plants and you have to be able to understand the consumer and so like there's that component of it and that layer and there's also you know taking care of the plants in you know the garden center to make sure that they sell or that they're arranged or and it's just a lot more complicated and there's never enough time in the day. You're now adding on this other layer of, look, you can show, you can put these things for sale, but you have to understand your market segments and you have to understand who you're selling to and why. And that's actually, you know, where Dr. Torres took us on. That's one of the pieces she really enjoys is this market segments and how do you get the smaller, medium-sized people to think about who's showing up and why and what they can afford or what they're willing to pay. The, the whole marketing dynamic is, well, obviously that's where I've spent the last 33 years. So for me, that's the most interesting space. Hey, I want to go back again. When you mentioned price prices and raising prices, Bridget, um, when I and my family decided to shut down our 50-year-old greenhouse operation in 2011, Right. The decade leading up to that, getting through the Great Recession, et cetera, going through what I call the late grade 80s into the 90s when the mass markets kind of settled in. In the end, my observation was this, Bridget. We, as a small grower retailer, we always were able to have the highest prices in town. But in the end, when I look back at what the final straw was, and I have two brothers and at the time my parents. So off of an acre plus of greenhouse range, we had four households living from it. So in the end, my observation was we could have the highest prices, but over decades of battling the big box stores, they put a ceiling that I could not pierce. 
So I could raise my prices, but not high enough to keep us in business. How do you respond to that? Well, I'd like to believe that there's a, a market for just about everything. And there are some things that the box stores do that really help our industry, but there are also some things that they do that are not maybe as helpful. And I think people, more people get introduced to our industry through, I would say now the supermarket mm -hmm. and secondarily the box store, because we do see a lot more potted herbs in the supermarket and foliage to a lesser extent, some of the flowering plants, you know, obviously at the holiday time. But the box stores really have introduced a lot of people to our industry. And yet, I think I will point the finger back on us as an industry for not being able to show them really the value of what it is that they bought. When consumers will spend $3 on a cup of coffee at Starbucks, they're doing it for reasons other than simply to get a cup of coffee. They can get coffee many places at a better price. And so it saddens me that small businesses particularly have suffered from this, but we just as an industry have not tried to convey to consumers the I'll go back to Melinda and Charlie's articles, the benefits of plants. When you think about the concern about the environment today, I don't think Lowe's and Home Depot are talking about mitigating runoff and reducing pollution and reducing carbon dioxide in the air. And, you know, it'd be great if they did, but that's simply not their, their strategy, their strategy is that, that low to moderate price, the price sensitive household who's, who's a DIY, who's coming in to do projects because that's what a lot of those stores are or the Walmarts and poor old Michigan based Kmart, you know, again, they're, they're targeting a more price conscious consumer. And so a lot of these benefits, a lot of these plant benefits, a lot of the things that elevate the perceived value will never come into the conversation. And yet the small grower retailer doesn't have the resources to talk about carbon sequestration and pollinator habitats and mitigating runoff and heat islands and many things that resonate with people of all generations, but most especially some of the younger generations that we could be cultivating a habit, a lifetime habit of buying and enjoying plant material. We're really good at the plants and that's where our forte is. And you look, you know, if you wanna understand somebody's values, you look at their calendar and you look at their checkbook. And when I look at our industry's value, I look at where they're spending research time and money. So much is being invested in production horticulture. And that's great. We need new cultivars. We need to understand how to control new pests, how to deal with new disease. There's no question about that. But when I look at the percentage of funds that go into practical consumer research, it just makes me want to cry. 
And that has not changed dramatically over the past 33 years. It is still a struggle. And, and I'll go on record here, and I know this will probably get me into a little bit of hot water, but I remember going to AFE, American Floral Endowment, asking them if they would consider a study that I was doing, and it, and it involved eye tracking. And their response was, no, we're already doing an eye tracking study. Hmm. And my response was, well, that's great. Are you doing one, more than one fertilizer study? Are you doing more than one insect or disease study? Well, of course. And I said, but there's no difference here. To call them out, I think is, you know, I'll bear the consequences of that. But my point here is the focus still is on growing a great plant and extending that shelf life. And those are noble causes. But I'm going to say, without understanding the dynamics of the consumer piece, we easily slip into overproduction. And mm -hmm. we know what happens to everybody when we get into overproduction. We know the price goes down. And it's just this tension between production research and, and market research that I just, I can't, I can't be that smart. <laughs> Why am I the only one to see this? Or one of the few that really sees this? Uh, you know, I know the box stores are doing their own consumer research and they're not sharing that. Why should they? They're the ones to capitalize on that and kudos to them for investing that money. But to me, our industry associations are devoting more. I look at the percentage HRI every year. They have really increased what they fund in terms of consumer research, not just my program, but other programs. And I think that's wonderful. And still, when I look at total funding, it just, it's a bit of a struggle. We need to do better. We need to do much better. Hey, let me let me turn this a bit. And another thing that you mentioned a, a few minutes ago, I've been sensing as, as an educator, uh, let me go back maybe a couple of decades. Folks like us would be concerned that urbanites didn't have a clue as to what agriculture was, what a farm was. But I feel that in the past decade, we've made such progress, whether by accident or on purpose. Now, city folk understand, in fact, many are enamored by agriculture and the family farm. So what helped pivot this, this perception of agriculture and again, it's in our favor, as you're saying, it's our game to lose now that we're getting them on board. You know, I think it started with a concern about the environment, particularly carbon emissions, and it has evolved to concerns about food sourcing and environmental impact of producing food. And I think it really has become more of a mainstream concern. We, we got one planet, we have limited resources, and we understand the impact that not just our industry, but other industries are having on that environment. And people want good, tasty, nutritious food. We've all had nasty tasting fresh produce that is just a bit of a joke. And I think finally consumers push back against that along with being concerned about the resources in their backyard. And People are making better choices when they can afford it. We still have food deserts. We still have big problems with food production. Part of that answer can be in the, the literal backyard. I mean, local 
everything, especially coming out of the pandemic, being able to support a local business before the pandemic was important, after or through the pandemic is still very important. I think people want to spend their dollar with those local businesses and contribute to what they perceive, and, and I would agree, as, as part of the solution. I want to jump in and say that on the list of attributes, you said that the, uh, local stores can be promoting, that every single one of them resonated with me, whether it's the runoff or the heat traps. And I was impressed when you went back and added the heat islands again. It is a topic that is much more broadly talked about. And then with the plant, you know, with the vegetable plants, you get into overlapping at at every major recession in the last 100 to 130 years, I'd say, you know, there has been a push for people to grow more of their own fruits and vegetables. The pandemic pulls a lot of these together. You have this interest or time from some people and you have this need from others and access at the grocery store. I couldn't believe how many tomatoes Costco was selling a couple of weeks ago when I was there. Like, and I found myself wondering, do people walk in expecting to buy a tomato while they're here or do they, you know, they're in the freezer section and they just see them. So they go ahead and buy them. And, and it is that interesting aspect. And I wondered if you thought that some of the people that tried it last year, you'll obviously lose some, but will others that had some success double down and then either upgrade to that garden center or expand their planting fruits or their flowers and stuff because now they've had access? Yes, all of your, your messages as the you know quintessential millennial totally hit home. I'm glad to hear that, Michelle. Tying that in back with Peter's comment about the urbanization, I think we see more people in a concentrated area in an urban setting, which is where I think we see some of those concerns emerging and then maybe spreading. Community is a very important word today. People want to belong and be either digitally with or physically near people who who think like them. And I, I believe our industry can pick up a lot of those threads and be the pivotal resource, the, the key point for a lot of this conversation. We have, we can point people to solutions, reduce heat islands and block unsightly neighbors and reduce noise and clean the air. I mean, we, you know, this is a funny thing to say, but if General Motors or IKEA had a product that could sequester carbon, that could mitigate runoff, that could just all the cool things that plants do, do you think they'd be quiet on that? <laughs> Heck no. And yet, horticulture industry, we're kind of this big toe in the sand, aw shucks kind of people that we, we fear, I think, sometimes that it's being boastful. And my goodness, if we could shout this stuff from the rooftops and keep people engaged and get them to rally around our community and embrace the people who want to be plant parents and embrace the people who want to have wildflower patches on their green roof so that they're sources of uh, habitat for pollinators, we got all that stuff. But I think where we fall short is we're doing so many other things that we're like, oh yeah, I guess I should have done that or I should have talked about that or I should have put that on social. And it it is overwhelming. General Motors, Ikea, 
they got nothing on us except a lot of money to do the digital marketing and people to think about these conversations and then engage others. That much has not changed. Yeah, Bridget, I'm going to pose my last question and then let Michelle kind of bring us in for a landing. Try not to let any of our guests leave our uh, episode without asking this question. Michelle has helped me understand that the local agriculture scene currently comprises about 3% of our national agriculture market. As I learned that, my question became, well, how much can we grow that sector? Because Bridget, my research now has turned completely away from ornamental crops. And now for 10 years, I've been on controlled environment agriculture and hydroponic food production. So all of my effort is focused on bringing back some of the industrial agriculture to the local grower. I believe that controlled environment, whether it's greenhouse or indoors, is allowing us to do that. So some of our experts and Michelle have helped me, have helped define it for me. And basically, well, if we could take that 3% and turn it into 9 or 10%, wow, that would be it. That deflates me because I look at it and say, is only 10% of this possible? So let me stop there and get your perspective. Well, I believe the indoor controlled environment dimension really can grow that local segment. I would be reluctant to put a number on there, but I can easily see it doubling in the next couple of years. I am part of an indoor ag tech innovation seminar with several people. Wendy's, there's a woman from the company Wendy's that's on there, Driscoll Farms, you know, that we're talking about this controlled environment ag, and there's very little consumer research that's been done that's not proprietary. I know these big companies are doing lots of it. Combining some of the safety, the food safety concerns, and the local production, those two dimensions, and this is my working hypothesis, twice Roberto Lopez and I tried to get this funded in a specialty crop block grant and couldn't get it funded, but we, we wanted to investigate really what the drivers were, what the tipping points are for getting people to see the benefits of indoor controlled ag. I just think like any market, it's gonna be diverse and there's some real traction there, particularly with the reduced, not eliminated, but reduced food safety concerns and with the, the local nature of that. So I think that'll be an interesting panel on Friday. I, I just think like so many other things, the longer we're quiet about this, the longer it's gonna take consumers to figure out that it's there, that it's a good thing, it has benefits, it's not perfect, but it, it can be very helpful to the local economy, the local environment and to consumers themselves. But without good marketing, we run the risk of overproduction. Michelle, how many times have you and I had conversations where my perspective was from shrinkage and rate waste and coming through the recession of uh, a decade ago, the overproduction that Bridget is referencing. Brid Bridget, it ended that my topics on programs 
at conferences were less about production and more about just profitability and shrinkage. And I'd, I'd always refer to shrink crop shrinkage as the silent assassin. And you've touched on profit margins and opportunities that we have today. Yeah, I found this conversation awesome. Um, I want to thank you for joining us. And I want you to share your podcast with our listeners. So where can we find more of your conversations? Yeah, thanks, Michelle and Peter both. I really appreciated being a guest on your podcast. So mine is called Marketing Munchies. It is a brief 10 to 15 minute weekly podcast. And it's on my website that also has the publications from my peer-reviewed research it's called connecttoconsumer.com. It's connect hyphen, the number two hyphen consumer.com. And it's a free weekly podcast that really is geared toward the practical application of a lot of my research. So again, thanks for having me on your podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bridget.